Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 5. So tonight we're going to do more of a topical ser- sermon. Um, not really exegeting the text as much as preaching the theme of peace. Today is uh, Remembrance Sunday. We've thought this morning about the greatest love from John 15 verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. But someone lay down his life for his friends. Well, this evening we're going to think about what does Jesus want for this world? He wants peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So it's important then we, when we do look at the Beatitudes, we remind ourselves of what they are and what they're not. The Beatitudes are not laws. They're not conditions of salvation. They're not the way by which you gain entry into God's kingdom. You get the idea? Beatitudes are announcements, exclamations of kingdom life that we have received in Christ. This is not the life you could ever earn. This is not the life you could ever achieve. But this is the way of life you've received as a result of trusting in Jesus for salvation and trusting him as your king. This is the quality, the characteristics of one's life under the reign of King Jesus. His children are blessed with these realities. I love what Billy Graham once said about the Beatitudes. They are the beautiful attitudes of God's children. Now, truth be told, um, many people in our world would applaud the Beatitude that we're grounding our thoughts in this evening. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And I say that because I don't think they would applaud the other Beatitudes Our world is more likely to say blessed are the proud in spirit, not the poor in spirit. Blessed are the powerful, not the meek. But they would say a hearty amen to blessed are the peacemakers. Because everyone in this world loves peace and longs for peace. It's the reason why we give out the Nobel Peace Prize, one of the highest honors you can receive in this world. It's the reason why we love people like Nelson Mandela and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Sadat and Rabin and Arafat. We love, in this world, by and large, peace and peacemakers. Now, the reason for that is that we are all made in the image of God. And as such, instinctively, deep down, we know we were made for the shalom of the Garden of Eden for the peace of God's presence and not for the violence and the brokenness and the turmoil of this world. So as I set this sermon up tonight, I want to say this. Our world and the kingdom of God find commonality in this. We all love peace and we all long for it. But as you look at it closer, you see actually there's conflict in the world's vision for peace. And Jesus' vision for peace. So what we're going to do tonight is do just that. Look at the world's vision for peace. Then Jesus' vision for peace. And then our calling as peacemakers. So the world's vision of peace. If you were to go home tonight and open up a dictionary, or more likely type it in your phone, the word peace, and ask what its meaning is, it would say the absence of conflict. Freedom from disturbance. Peace is a state or a period in which there is no war. And I think, by and large, that's how the world defines peace. 
So the question is, how then does the world try to achieve peace? Now, that's a much more difficult question to answer because there are many ways that this world goes about trying to answer peace. But I want to take two general words and say, or two general strategies that the world has used in every generation to try and keep the peace. First one's separation, and the next one's toleration. So let's think about the world's strategy of separation. From the beginning of humanity, our world has tried to keep the peace by keeping separate from one another. I'll gather in my tribe, you gather in your tribe. I'll gather with my clan, you gather with your clan. I gather with my people, you gather with your people. And let's agree, for the sake of our own self-interest, let's leave each other alone. Let's keep the peace. Sounds like a reasonable plan, doesn't it? But the problem is it's never worked. Why hasn't it worked? Well, my little tribe wants to dominate your little tribe and become an even bigger tribe. My clan wants to wipe out your clan because we want to extend our boundaries. My people want to enslave your people and to build our empire. You see, the problem with this vision of peace is that it doesn't deal with the problem of the sinful heart of human mankind, which means we never stay separated. In every generation since the fall, we can stay separated. We seem to be at war with one another because we want what the other has got. And even if it did work, this vision for peace separation, do you see the glaring problem? It's this definition of peace. This isn't peace. This is relegating peace to segregation, to separation. That, by definition, is division. So on the one hand, the world tries to bring about peace through separation. But on the other hand, the world also tries to bring about peace through toleration. And this is probably the most prominent means that is used today, especially in our Western world. Now, toleration, unlike separation, rejects the whole notion of separating people up from one another. It recognizes that's not good, that doesn't work. And so what toleration it says, it's a better model, it says we want people of different backgrounds, people with different identities to live together with a mutual spirit of respect and acceptance. Sounds great, what a noble idea. I could actually give a, a side lecture on why I think that's actually a Christian idea, but I won't. The problem today is our world has changed the meaning of tolerance. In the Western world, we've redefined what tolerance means. So in order to accomplish tolerance, our Western elites believe that everyone needs to buy in to the politically correct worldview. We all need to have the politically correct beliefs and values, and that will all help us get along with one another. You know the problem with that is? doesn't work for us who are orthodox Christians because our beliefs and our values, well, often they don't compute with the beliefs and values of the political, politically correct Western progressive elites. And they don't see the irony of their definition of toleration. They say on the one hand, we don't think separation is a good idea. We want everyone to get along from different identities. But actually what they're saying is we want those who've got strong identities, beliefs and values. We want them to renounce them and adopt our own. Instead of toleration today, we have an incredibly intolerant social order. 
So let me summarize the two positions as follows. Peace through separation says retain your identity but renounce unity. Peace through toleration allows us to retain our unity but we must renounce our identity. And you know what both of these strategies end up echoing? The prophet Jeremiah. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. The biggest problem with the world's vision for peace and strategy for peace is it's playing by the rules of the fall. And that is always bound for disaster. So we've looked at the world's vision or definition of peace. Let's now think about Jesus' vision of peace. How would Jesus define peace? Well, that's where the Hebrew word is so key. Shalom. And sometimes we think of shalom as the, the Hebrew greeting. Shalom. Or the way you say goodbye, Shalom. The word shalom literally means to wish somebody God's highest, richest, fullest state of blessing. But the reality of shalom is to experience flourishing in every dimension under God. So if you want to know which biblical shalom and the way Jesus would define peace looks like, all you need to do is go back to the very start of the Bible. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 give us shalom in high definition. This is how the Bible begins. Very good God, generous, loving, out of the abundance of his love for himself, decides to create this very good world. Into this very good world, he places this garden. He plants this garden and it's called Eden. And it's in Eden we behold shalom in all its glory and splendor. You see, Eden was this garden that was majestic, lush, and beautiful. It was extravagantly, extremely fertile. It was the place of optimal conditions for life to flourish. It was perfect. It was paradise. In fact, what made Eden paradise was God's abiding presence. God's presence made Eden the garden temple. It made Eden heaven on earth. Now, what did God, who did God place into Eden? Well, he placed humankind. He placed our first parents, Adam and Eve. And he placed them there so that they could live in perfect relationship with him. That's the first aspect of shalom you need to grasp. God's fullest, highest, richest state of blessing is living in right relationship with him. The second aspect, if you like, of shalom is that God created Adam and Eve, as the first two chapters of the Bible tell us, just like him. He fashioned them in his own likeness. Now, what do we know about God? We know that God is diverse and yet one. That is, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, diverse. And yet the three persons of the Trinity are one. He made the first humans different. One's male, one's female. Diverse but he also made them one. In the Garden of Eden, you see diversity in unity. That's shalom. 
And then second, then thirdly, you see Adam and Eve were placed in the garden with purpose. They were placed with the creation mandate. They were given the great and glorious responsibility to, to name all the creatures, to have dominion over all things, to live off the produce of the land, to enjoy the fruit of their labors. That's shalom. Shalom looks like living in right relationship, not just with God and with one another, but also with creation. Shalom is flourishing under God in every aspect of life. Now, sadly, as we turn the page from Genesis 1 and 2, we come to Genesis 3, and we discover that our first parents vandalized this shalom of God through eating from the forbidden tree. And what did that lead to? What did the entry of sin into this world lead to? Well, one, it led to them being evicted from the near presence of God. That is the relationship between God and man, ruptured, ruined by sin. Secondly, what did it lead to? The curse placed on the relationship where Eve would now try and usurp Adam. And, and, and you get out of the Garden of Eden, and what's the first sin we read about in Genesis chapter 4? It's Cain killing Abel. Humankind at war with one another. Shalom ruined. And then thirdly and finally, as Adam and Eve are evicted from the garden, they now no longer enjoy living in creation, but this cursed creation is now the place that draws sweat forth from their foreheads. And they work now among the thorns and the thistles. It's painful. It's difficult. Even childbearing, one of God's greatest and most glorious gifts, is to be a painful reality for the woman. Shalom in the garden. Shalom ruined. And the unfolding storyline of the Bible is how God in Christ reestablishes his shalom. And that's what we were thinking about this morning. At the cross, that's what Jesus did. He shed his blood so that we could be brought back into right relationship with God. He shed his blood so that the dividing wall of hostility would be brought down between Jew and Gentile so that there could be unity in diversity. And he has promised that there is coming a day when this cursed world will be set free from the curse of sin. That's redemption. Peace reestablished. Now here's the reality. We who are Christians now live in, at peace with God. To a degree, we, we as Christians live at peace with one another. But because we inhabit this fallen and broken world that's not yet been recreated, and our bodies have not yet been renewed, resurrected into the new body, it means that we still battle with sin, indwelling sin. We still live in this world which is a constant war zone and which brings much suffering and pain and death. In other words, what I'm saying is we live in the now and not yet. The perfect paradise of the new creation has not yet come. That place of no more sin, death, and suffering is not yet here. And so Jesus' vision as we live in the here and now is that you and I have been entrusted with one of the most glorious missions. We are to be, as his children, peacemakers. 
We are to be all about peace. Our world desperately needs peace. And God has not entrusted this job to politicians or diplomats or Nobel Peace Prize winners. No, God has entrusted the work of peace to his church, to his children, to his kingdom people. We're to love what God loves. We're to pursue what God pursues. He's the God of peace. He pursued peace in sending his son, Jesus Christ. His son is the prince of peace. His spirit, the fruit of the spirit, is peace. And so we are to be a people who are all about peace. So we've looked at the world's vision of peace, and there's Jesus' vision of peace. It's shalom. It's life and right relationship with God. It's right life and right relationship with each other. It's life and right relationship with creation. And God says that you and I are to be all about this peace. So let's think about our calling as peacemakers. I think it plays out in three different ways. And the first one is the, the most, is where I'll be most brief in this regard. If you're going to be a peacemaker, the first thing you need to be willing to admit is you're somebody who also vandalizes the shalom of God, even as one of God's children because of indwelling sin. You and I contribute to the, to the brokenness of this world. Some of us aren't at peace with one, our, ourselves. Some of us aren't even at peace with those who we love the most. Some of us aren't at peace with people even in this church. Some of us know division in the workplace, division in many of our relationships, even as Christians. Let's all admit that before we, 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 we go into our calling as peacemakers is that we ourselves are sinners who fail when it comes to making peace. And so the very first place we begin is we must go before the Lord and repent. Humbly acknowledge that we are sinners who contribute to the brokenness of this world. And the amazing thing about that is that when you go before the Lord is that he delights to give you mercy and grace and as he fills us with his mercy and his grace and as he renews us by his spirit, we're compelled to go forth in love. We understand why some people are so angry and frustrated because we're just the same at times. We understand why people nurse grudges because we do at times. We understand why people can be so prejudiced because we are at times. Acknowledging that you are someone who is a sinner is the best place to begin if you're going to be about the mission of peace. But when it comes to the proactive work of peacemaking, I think it breaks down in two main ways. So if our vertical relationship with God has been ruptured by sin, then the first work we've got to be about as peacemakers is fixing the relationship that is broken in this world, other people's relationship with God. And so here's how we fulfill that calling. We are a people who need to be about the business of evangelism, of declaring the good news that God in his son has come to make peace. People need to repent and believe and trust in his son. Those are the peace terms. That is the peace agreement. God delights to reconcile that which has been ruined by sin. 
Now, when I say evangelism there, as we evangelize, as we go forth with the good news, let me, let me say this, right? Sometimes you will never have an audience if you never show the people that you, you're, worth, you're someone worth listening to. So evangelism, don't just think of it in this narrow and single dimension in a way where we think it's just me speaking the gospel to other people. If you want to win a hearing of people, one of the things you can do is to love them by your deeds and with your actions. It's one of the reasons why the church, we're called to mercy ministry and we're called to action, social action. We're to seek the, the good and the peace and the prosperity of our communities, of our cities, of our countries, of our world. We can care for creation. We can care for the poor. We can care for those in need. And as we do so, we might be given the great opportunities to make known our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who can address humankind's greatest need, peace with God. But I need to stress this. That is our most fundamental mission, declaring the good news of Jesus to those who are alienated from him. And the reason I say that is our fundamental mission is because you'll never fix someone's horizontal relationship with other people if you don't first fix their vertical relationship with God. Because here's the thing. Do you know why horizontally we are so separate at times from one another? Do you know why at times people opt for toleration? That's not really toleration, it's just intolerance. It's because what inevitably happens in this world is we make our earthly identities the main thing, the be-all and end-all. So do you know what separates our world right now? We live in a world, just Western world I'm talking about here largely, identity politics. And everybody's banging on about the importance of their identity, whether it's their ethnicity, whether it's their socioeconomic status, whether it's their political loyalty. And in this world of identity politics, we make our earthly identities the be, end, and we just make it everything. And unwittingly, what does that do? Well, it polarizes us, it divides us, it keeps us away from other people. Now, here's the thing. When you get your vertical relationship with God sorted out, you get a new identity, and your identity is in Christ. And that trumps and transcends all earthly identities. Do you know why you can get, let me use British politics, I was going to use American there. I've got a problem, right? I sometimes just fall into speaking American at times, right? I think it's because I'm so influenced. So this morning I kept on saying, Lieutenant, Bob pointed this out. All you British people were probably cringing inside. It's Lieutenant. <laughs> That's the British way. I, I forgot. I, so, so forgive me. So I was going to say Republican and Democrat there. What I mean by, you can get people who are Tories and Labour supporters divided. But if they're in Christ, their main identity is Christ. And so regardless of their political loyalties, they can be one and not just tolerate each other, but truly love each other. You can get people who, who ethnically have very different identities and perhaps the, the histories between their ethnic, um, their, their nations is 
perhaps one that's been very tense, but in Christ, if they set aside their ethnic identities and don't make them the main thing, but make Christ their main thing, then they can be one. Not remaining separate from one another, but being together with one another, not just tolerating one another, but truly loving one another. When I was in America, I heard one preacher say, the most segregated hour in America today is 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Because all the whites will be in their church and all the blacks will be in their church. That's the church adopting the world strategy for peace. But that's not the strategy of Jesus. He wants diversity united. That's the way it was in creation, male and female. That's the way it was at the cross, Jew and Gentile. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free. All are one in Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. It matters that you're a female and it matters that I'm a male. It matters that you're a free person and it matters that if I'm a slave, it matters that you're a Jew or that I'm a Gentile. That's, that's, who, that's our story. That's our history. That's our heritage. All that matters. But it cannot take first place. What takes first place is Jesus is our identity. And so we can have unity and diversity, not segregation, not separation. Do you see that Jesus is the more richer, more comprehensive, more compelling vision for peace in this world? Now, here's, here's the other thing. I go back to being in America a few weeks ago. I was at a missions conference in Tennessee, and they had 30 missionaries there from different nations of the world. And I, I got so inspired, so inspired, because I saw that Christianity, by very definition, is a global faith. Now, you need to understand that what makes Christianity unique is that we're, we're global, and when I say global, I really mean global. Now, you could say, so are the other main religions of the world. Well, let's take Islam, for example. If you're to be a true Muslim, you need to learn Arabic, and you need to, you need to see that the center of the world is in Mecca. You need to adopt the religious customs of that culture. Take Judaism, exact same thing. Religions often are actually an expression of just a nations, culture, and history, and practices, and traditions. Not so with Christianity. Christianity is one of the most dynamic religions on the face of the earth, because it goes to all nations, takes on whatever cultural form it might be, and whatever context it might be, but Christ is the center, and Christ is to be worshipped as people with different tri from different tribes, different tongues, different nations. And so Christianity has this mosaic look this different feel. There's something beautiful about me being a pastor of a church that is as diverse as ours. Because we see on display here. But, here's the problem. Even Christians, like you and me, we have a tendency to want to be like the other world religions. To make people conform to our culture. Since we're a Presbyterian church, let me give you a Presbyterian illustration. So I play on my identity the whole time. I'm mixed race. I love this, right? I'm British. I'm Scottish. Proud of it. I'm also Malawian. So proud of it. 
both of them together. I'm proud of being a Malawian Scot, a British Malawian, right? That's who I am. I'm so thankful that my British forebears took the gospel to Malawi. David Livingston, Robert Laws, Donald Fraser. I could tell you their stories. I could tell you what they did. But as a Malawian, and, who, and as a Malawian who had a dad who was a Presbyterian minister, I can also tell you that even though they brought the gospel, one of the greatest gifts they ever gave to the Malawians in the 18th and 19th century, they not only preached the gospel, but they converted my Malawian forebears to Scottish culture. <laughs> Winnie and I were chatting about this at lunch. You, you can go to a Malawian Presbyterian church today and you'll find a minister wearing a dog collar and robes. Where did he get that from? I'll tell you where he didn't get it from, Malawi. <laughs> You'll find them singing Psalm 100, Scottish Psalter version to the very tune, Old 100. Where did he get that from? I'll tell you where he didn't get it from, Malawi. <laughs> and there is something sad in that. There is a tendency among all of us as Christians and by the way, this wasn't just an 18th and 19th century problem. This was a first century problem. The Jewish Christians, when they went forth with the gospel, do you remember even for the apostle Peter what his problem was? He became a Judaizer. He thought if you're going to be a Gentile and you want to be a Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to stop eating unclean foods. You've got to become like us Jews if you want to be a Christian. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is come to Jesus, have your relationship made right with God, and Jesus receive a new identity, and then Jesus become one with people who are different than you, and you don't need to make them like you. You can celebrate who they are, and they can celebrate who you are, but you can be one together, and you showcase the glory and the wonder of the saving power of the gospel. And so it would be so easy being a Scottish church in London that I made you all Scottish. <laughs> that I made you love Christianity in a Scottish mold. Remember Laura. I don't know if you noticed this, right? See, when we read the short catechism, you're not reading the 16th century version of the catechism. I'm sorry. <laughs> Diehard Scots hate that. We prefer the, the real rich Anglo English, Shakespearean English of the 16th and 17th century. Now, you're reading the modern version of the catechism. And I remember when Laura said to me why she wanted to do that, Andy, we're in a church where English, especially not Shakespearean English, is not their first language. We need to accommodate. We need to be contextual. We, we need to bring the truths that we've got so that all can hear and understand. In a... In Tennessee, when I was at that missions conference, we, we sang a Kenyan hymn, one of the worship services. And it was a really rich experience because it was, let's just say, it was, it was an American, Presbyterian, majority, all-white church. One of the pastors, mixed race, his daughter, led the singing. She's from Kenya, or Kenyan origin. And there was something so beautiful because some of their mission partners were from Kenya. And it was like we were saying, not only do we validate who you are, but we recognize that as kingdom people, 
there will be a day where all of us who are different will sing God's praise in our own tongues before the Lamb. So, so, so Jesus' vision for peace, brothers and sisters, it's the most glorious vision. And if anyone ought to understand it, if anyone ought to be passionate about it, it's us here in London. <laughs> and so our mission is not to make people more Scottish Presbyterians. Although we love the theology, we love the history, we love the heritage, our greatest mission is to see Jesus Christ held out so that people come to Christ and as they grow in him, they grow in him, knowing that their love for who they are not just tolerated and they're celebrated for who they are and we do it all together. Since this is Remembered Sunday, let me close this sermon with an illustration from World War II. I read it in the Times and the New York uh, Times, 2008, bitchery section. Then you know the name Jacob de Chaser. He died in 2008, aged 95. Now, he had a contemporary who was Japanese. If I've tried to pronounce his name, I'd butcher it, so I'm not going to do it right. Mitsuo Fushida, something like that. And... Um, Mitsuo Fushida led the attack on the 7th of December 1941 in Pearl Harbor. And in loyalty and patriotism to Japan, he, he, he just relished the fact that he led the attack to bomb the Americans. And it was that event that brought the Americans into the war. And Jacob de Chaser was one of the airplane pilots who was first to go to Japan on a bomber to drop bombs in Japan. And when he dropped bombs, he was dropping so many bombs that as he turned around to make his way back to his aircraft carrier, the USS Hornet, he ran out of petrol. And so he and his fellow colleagues had to press eject. And they landed in China, but in Japanese-occupied territory, immediately arrested and immediately taken to a Japanese prison camp where he was brutally tortured. And Jacob de Chaser in that camp was given by one of the prison guards a Bible. It wasn't a Christian at this point, but there in that prison camp, Jacob de Chaser became a Christian. As he read the Bible, he was given, he said, his own words, new spiritual eyes that changed his bitter hatred for the Japanese to love and pity. Because he came to see that his Savior loved his enemies, people like him. And he realized that the reason the Japanese did what they did was because they'd not come to Christ and they, by nature, were sinful. And therefore, if you're sinful at heart, you can be cruel. After gaining his freedom, the shades of her vowed that he was going to make it the rest of his life's ambition to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ in Japan. So he did that. And in 1950, he managed, as he was standing at a train station, to give a track to a man who passed him, this Mitsu Fushida, the man who led the attack on Pearl Harbor. And that track was just Deshazer's story, his testimony of how he came to faith. And as he sat down and read Deshazer's story, this Japanese man found himself convicted by the good news of the gospel. Do you know what verse really pricked his heart? 
Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus' prayer at his death, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is what Fashida wrote. He wrote, I was impressed that I was certainly one of those for whom Jesus had prayed. The many men I had killed in the name of patriotism, for I did not understand the love which Christ wishes to implant within every heart. I would give anything to retract my actions of 29 years ago at Pearl Harbor, but it's impossible. Instead, I'm going to make it my life's ambition to strike the death blow, the basic hatred which infests every human heart and causes such tragedies. This Japanese warrior became, with his friend Jacob de Chaser, an evangelist in Japan proclaiming the gospel. This is the picture. These men, two sworn enemies. Their ethnic identities, bitter rivals in World War II. But they became one in Christ. And shoulder by shoulder, side by side, they proclaimed the gospel. It changed and transformed their lives. And church, that's what the gospel does. And that's why we got to make it. Our heart's ambition to be the peacemakers that Jesus calls us to be as his children. Let's pray.